Please be seated. Well, we're continuing our, our series in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And today um, we're beginning to work our way through the Lord's Prayer, which is, of course, the last section in the Catechism that deals with that. As we saw last week, we kind of had an introduction about the Lord's Prayer and that it's given to us as a model of prayer. Same way that the Ten Commandments summarize God's law, the Lord's Prayer summarizes the petitions that we should be bringing to God when we pray. I mentioned to you that it's not so much a summary about praising and thanking God, as it is about the petitions, the requests and supplications that we bring to God. It shows us things that are agreeable to His will that are right and good for us to ask for and things that we ought to include in our prayers. Without this guidance that we get from this prayer, we would be inclined to leave out important things in our prayers. Maybe we would gravitate to one thing or another. And it would be hard also for us to know if the things that we were praying for really were agreeable to God's will. It's very kind of our Heavenly Father to give us a model prayer like this. We saw how the disciples ask Jesus for it on one occasion and on another occasion that he simply gave it to his uh, disciples in, when, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount when he preached that. So it, it's kind of the Lord to give it to us. Question 100 is our question for today, and it does have to do with the preface to the Lord's Prayer that is found in Matthew 6-9. So let's confess together the answer to these, th- this question 100. Question 100 what doth the preface of the Lord, to the Lord's Prayer teach us? The preface to the Lord's Prayer, which is our Father which art in heaven, teacheth us to draw near to God with all holy reverence confidence as children to a Father able and ready to help us and that we should pray with and for others. So my text for this sermon is very, very short. It is our Father in heaven. We have already read a supplementary reading from Romans 8 earlier in the service. I'll be referring to that later on in the message. And when we get to the third point, we'll be working our way through Psalm 115, which brings out this very thing to us. But now let me give you just an overview of where I want to go. First of all, we'll look at the fact that Jesus teaches us to say our Father instead of my Father. Catechism rightly points out that this teaches us that we should pray with and for others. Then after we've looked at that, we'll look at how we can only pray rightly when we see God as our Father one who has us as his children, who loves us as his children. And then we'll look at how we can only pray rightly when we remember that he is in heaven and so has the ability to answer our prayers. And that's where we'll especially zero in on Psalm 115. So let's get on with the first part, the use of the word our in the preface to the Lord's Prayer. What does Jesus tell why does Jesus tell us to use the plural word our in our address to God here? Our Father in heaven instead of my Father in heaven. It doesn't mean that you should never say my Father in heaven, but the question is, you know, why does he bring this to us in this way? 
First, he does this because he expects us to pray together in the church. It is very true that we're to pray privately as well. Jesus tells us to go into our closet and shut our door and pray in secret. And our Heavenly Father who sees us in secret will reward us. But uh, we, we certainly ought to do that. But if we only pray in public and we don't pray in private, then it shows a hypocrisy about us. We're only praying to be seen by others. Something that Jesus warns about us in the context. We've looked at that already. Prayer is also a public ordinance of the church. In Acts 2.42, it is mentioned with other public ordinances of the church, like preaching in the Lord's Supper. And in 1 Timothy 2.8, it says that men should pray in every place. I just preached on that recently in, um, at Erskine. That, that's a technical term, in every place. It's the worshiping kind of place. The Christian, it's kind of a, a semi-technical term for the Christian assembly. The Bible is full of examples of Christians praying together in the assembly as well as in more informal meetings, just on the spur of the moment when there's something needed, just go and bow and pray. Instruction is given in 1 Corinthians 14, 16 that only one should pray at a time when we're in a a large assembly. One person is to lead and the others are to join him. And you shouldn't say, oh, I'm not praying because someone else is praying. You should all be praying. When someone is leading in prayer, you should be engaged with what is saying so that corporately we're all bringing our hearts before God around the same thing. Corporate prayer is a true blessing and it ought not to be neglected. There is a tremendous encouragement in lifting up our requests together and in knowing that our brothers and sisters are praying for us in the same way that when we come to the Lord's Supper, there's a blessing in knowing that others are looking to Christ and are rejoicing in Him at the same time we are. It binds us together as we pray for each other. That brings us to the second thing about the word our in the preface. Jesus uses the word our to remind us that we are to pray for each other and not just for ourselves. When you are in need, I am to pray that my Father in heaven who's also your father in heaven, would look after you. If you're sick and have a specific need, specific burden or something, then I'm to share in that burden by bringing it before our father in heaven. The Bible even teaches us to pray for someone who repents that they would be forgiven. Sometimes we can kind of feel funny about praying that, but that's something we should pray because sometimes Forgiveness is sort of hard to receive and to understand and accept. And sometimes God may not, he, he may for a time withhold the blessing of that forgiveness. And so we, we pray for each other in that way too. We show our love to each other as brothers and sisters when we do this. Think about Job when he was instructed to pray for his friends that God would, would forgive them. And related to this, we need to see that there is a sense in which we are praying with and for our brothers and sisters all over the world whenever we pray. In other words, it's not just the people that we're necessarily gathered with when we say our, but we think in even larger terms than that. There are millions of Christians praying for the things that Christ tells us to pray about in the Lord's Prayer, even today on the Lord's Day, all over the world. When you are praying for a particular brother to find a job, there are millions of other Christians who are praying in a general way that God would give us this day our daily bread. 
And they're praying for that brother, for the whole, the whole body of Christ is praying for him in that way. They've never met the brother, but um, when we pray and bring general petitions to God, then, then we're thinking of all of the people of God. And when we pray for his kingdom to come, we may feel small and alone in our little prayer meeting, such a small group that's praying for, for these things that not many people attend. But how heartening it is to know that, that we're not alone at all, that many other people all over the world are praying that. There are Christians on every continent that are praying with us. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Joel Beakey told an interesting story about some believers in an area where there was much persecution and, and deprivation. And, you know, people that, that we would be praying for knowing that they were persecuted. And he said that when he told them this, he was visiting, and that they were encouraged to know that. But they told of how they pray for us in the West because they feel that we're in many ways in a worse place than they are. They're receiving the blessing that comes through persecution and they see us caught up with all of our worldliness and such. We don't even think about that. We think, oh yeah, things are going well for us, but those guys over there, it's so hard for them. And they're there praying, thinking God is taking care of us here. We need to pray for those poor people over in the West that are, are getting caught up in all of their houses and cars and phones and all, all the rest of it. What an encouragement it is that you know, the body of Christ is concerned around the world. We pray and are called to pray for one another. Jesus sets that before us. Third thing here is that Jesus tells us to say our Father because we are to pray with and for Him. I wonder how often you've thought about that. When we say our Father in Heaven, we're praying with and even for our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, He is the most important person within that pronoun, my, that we pray for because he is the king. And when all is well with the king, all is well with all. We need to have a stronger awareness that Jesus is alive and that whenever we pray, we are praying with him and he is praying with us. The early church seemed to be much more mindful of this than we are. In Acts 25, 19, uh, summarizes Paul's dispute with the Jews as pertaining to the questions about uh, a certain Jesus who died, um, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. The um, Festus, I believe it was, or, or Felix. He summarized this as a characteristic of Paul, that, that this one that died that Paul said was alive. They were, they were so mindful after the resurrection and ascension, that Jesus was still alive. They had a sense of that, of living for him. The encouragement that I spoke about before, that other people around the world are praying for us, is multiplied a thousand times when we think of Jesus also praying with us and for us. What kind of encouragement is that? He is our high priest in heaven. He is totally in touch with every detail of our lives. Hebrews 7.25 says that he is a high priest who ever lives to make intercession for us. Doesn't that hearten your prayers to know that he is praying? He is praying for the forgiveness of our sins that we don't even know we've committed. That we haven't even been convicted of those sins. And remember, the Father always hears him. That's an even greater encouragement. 
The very reason, in fact, that your prayers are ever heard is because Jesus is also praying with you for those things, when you, even when you pray. What an encouragement this is. Our Father, I'm praying with Jesus. If I'm by myself, I'm, He is there, knowing what I am praying. We have, but, but have you ever thought also that you pray for Jesus when you pray? That's right. He is our king and he is our priest and he is the one who is establishing his glorious kingdom of righteousness and we want him to succeed in his work. He will succeed and that gives us encouragement to pray, but that work is fueled along by our prayers. We pray that his kingdom would come, that his will would be done, that his church would have their daily bread and not be led into temptation. Just as Jesus counts it as if we fed him when we feed hungry members of his body, so also he counts it that we have prayed for him when we pray for the needy members of his body. So this whole idea, you see, carries into that way as well. What a huge encouragement there is in that little word, our, in the preface to the Lord's Prayer. Now let's look at how to pray, how to pray rightly, that in order to pray rightly, or if we're to pray rightly, we must see God as our Father. It's a very significant thing for a human being to be able to call God Father. And that is an incredible thing. We are all God's offspring. Of course, that's true, that he made all of us. But we all fell under his condemnation through Adam's sin and cannot properly be called God's children. Adam was the first man, and God tested him as the one that was appointed to represent us all, since we all come from him, to see if we would serve God as our God. You know what happened. Adam broke away from his allegiance to God by eating the forbidden fruit. By that action, he declared for the entire human race that we would not follow our Creator, but that we would rather live as we please. And need I say that because God is our Creator, this was an outrageous thing for man to do, for Adam to do and us in him. It was reprehensible. The result was that although we were God's offspring and that he created us, we fell under his condemnation. We could no longer approach him in prayer. We were the ones who rebelled against him and who dared to set ourselves up as gods ourselves in pride. When it came to approaching God, we had then what Romans 8.15 that we read earlier calls a spirit of bondage to fear. We knew that meeting God would mean death for us. It would mean condemnation for us. We wanted to clothe ourselves with fig leaves and hide. That's the way of the world as cut off from God. We wanted to hide from Him and to avoid Him as long as we could. But Romans 8 also speaks about how by Jesus, the spirit of bondage to fear is changed into a spirit of adoption by which we come to God as our daddy as our Papa, as our Father. In verse 14 and 15, it says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. In other words, they have the Holy Spirit that's working in them, that's brought them to conviction of their sin and brought them to repentance. It says, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, 
but you receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. You see what this is saying? Everyone who is led by the Spirit of God, everyone who is born of God's Spirit, are all sons of God, without exception. When we have the Holy Spirit who has opened our eyes to the truth and opened our hearts to the gospel, it means that we have been adopted as God's children. That's very special. We were cut off from God. We were cast out. It means that we're no longer in bondage to fear now, afraid to approach Him lest we be condemned by Him. Before we were born of the Spirit, we were in bondage to sin and death. That's all we had. But now we cry out, Abba, Father. Abba is equivalent to the word Daddy or Papa. It is the word a child uses to speak of his, to his father in a loving way, to address his father in a loving way. Radically affects our prayers. First of all, it enables us to pray to the true God at all. When you have the spirit of bondage to fear, you cannot and will not come to the true God because you don't want to be condemned and you would be condemned if you did. You can't come to him. That's why people worship idols. They change the truth of God into a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator because they're not comfortable with God. They make God out to be an impersonal force that they can tap into for power, but who will not judge them. Like the people that try to tap into spiritual forces today. They try to get some kind of power on their side from God, so to speak. Or they make God to be, on the other hand, a sinful being who's like us. One that they can manipulate and play off against other gods or other forces or other things that maybe he needs. He can pit one god against another god. They can bribe one by doing stuff for him. You have uh, views of God even in the Christian church where you, know, you, can, you can pay money and then he'll, he'll do this for you. He'll forgive you or, or do something else. Many so-called Christians look at God like that. God will accept me because I did my Hail Marys or because I gave to the poor. Or, you know, just because I'm a nice person. That's probably the most common one. But we will never come to the true God who has condemned us all for our sin until we, until we see that he is, the way he is conciliatory to us is through Jesus Christ. It is still an idol that we're praying to if we presume that he is conciliatory apart from faith in Christ. No one can come to the true God without faith in Christ who is crucified. If the one I am praying to does not require faith in his crucified son, then the one I'm praying to is not God. If I'm praying to a God that can receive me or anyone without faith in Jesus Christ, it's a different God. True God would have spared his son if there had been another way for sinners to be saved. There was not another way. Jesus is the only way. But what assurance we have to come to God in prayer when we are trusting in the one that God provided to save us from our sins, who, the one crucified for us. As Romans 8, 1 says, there is now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. We have been set free from the law of sin and death by Jesus. So when it later encourages us that we come to our Father without the spirit of bondage to fear, it's because there's no condemnation to us through Christ Jesus, that now we come as those who are fully forgiven and who are being transformed by the working of God. We would never come at all. We could never come at all unless God is our Father through Jesus Christ. And when we consider how God has provided for us by sending His Son, 
that causes us to come to him as a generous father who gives us good things as his children. Have you ever noticed how Jesus speaks about the father when he he speaks about him very, very frequently? He always speaks of him as one who gives. That's what's characteristic of a father with his children. That's what a real father does. He gives to his children. Jesus says the father gives all things to the son, speaking about himself. He says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to those that were to be his children here. We're told that he gives us all that we need for life and godliness. We're told that the father gives good gifts to his children and that the good gift, the best gift of all that he gives is the Holy Spirit. When you come to him in prayer as your father, it means that you come to him as one that you perceive to be generous toward all, toward his children, as one who wants to give you good things and who will give you good things, not one who is begrudging. We ask him to give us our daily bread and to forgive us of our sins and to give us the Holy Spirit so that we can serve him. And we know that he will, that he will give us what is good for us because he loves us. If we ask for a stone, he won't give us a rock. Those who know the most will pray, who know him the most as father will pray the most. When we're confident of his, heaven, of his fatherly love, we shower him with requests. We ask him to be with us because we know he will. We ask him to open the word to us so that we can know more about him and about what he's done for us. And we know that he will. Like a child wanting to hear our daddy tell us stories about himself and what he has done. We find pleasure in learning of our God through his word and asking him to open those stories to to our hearts so that they will grip us and we will understand them. We ask him to teach us about his glory and to open our eyes so that we can see the inheritance that he has for us. What kind of inheritance has our, our Father laid up for us? Eye is not seen or ear heard, but God has revealed them to us in His Word through His Spirit. Praying to Him as our Father also means that we come to Him with family concerns. Different families have different kinds of concerns, don't they? But when we come into God's family, we have the particularly our spiritual concerns now is a whole other element now of, our, of things we're concerned about. As Romans 8 says, we, now, we have now set our mind on the things of the Spirit instead of the things of the flesh. Romans 8, 5 says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. They're living without God. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. One of our concerns as a member of his family, a member who is filled with the Holy Spirit, is that we would live in ways that please him. That radically affects the way we pray. We ask him to show us his will, to give us discernment, to enable us to do his will. As his children, we have a new nature through the Holy Spirit so that we want to keep our daddy's commandments now. Our prayers reflect that when we come to God as our father. Another concern we have as members of his family is the concern that our daddy will be honored in the world. We love him and we pray that his name would be hallowed, that he would be glorified in our eyes and in the world's eyes, that our father will be respected and revered. We're pained when we see that he is not respected and revered in the world. We pray that every knee will bow and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
related to this, we pray that people would repent and enter His kingdom and that His enemies would, would be brought down either to repentance or to destruction. And we pray that we and our brothers and sisters in His house will do as well as it's done in heaven. We pray that we will grow in our love for each other as brothers and sisters, that we will serve one another in the house, that the house of God, our family's home, will be a beautiful place in the way that we live. These are desires of the Spirit, not of the flesh, that we have family desires of those who are God's children that we bring to our Father. We also call upon Him when we're suffering, when we're tempted, and we ask Him to give us the grace that we need to honor Him. We want to add to His glory when we suffer that our sufferings would bring glory to Him the way we respond. Verse 17 in Romans 8 says, that as dear children we suffer with Christ in order that we may be glorified together. Not that we make God more glorious when we suffer for Him, but rather that we cause other people to see His glory and how we love Him and how He works in our lives. You can show your love for God through your trials more easily than you can when there are no trials makes a lot of difference then when we see him as our father, doesn't it? Do not let Satan deceive you about this. I've heard a lot of people say that, that uh, because they had an abusive father or an indifferent father, that they don't want to think about God as father. That's a mistaken way to do it. Say so that the idea of father is negative in their minds. But that's a deception that comes from the devil. Believe me, if you had a bad father, then you're hungry to have a good one, and you have a good one, your Father in heaven, and you need to see if your Father was a bad example, that God is not like your Father, that the ways that your Father was not like God are the ways that God is like God. And you're running around, you see, trying to fill up your emptiness if you don't come to God as the one who is all of those things. God the Father is able to fill that place and much more. True satisfaction is found in knowing God is your Father who loves you. I've been finding, I've been getting a lot of mileage out of uh, when we did uh, Psalm 118, and it says, uh, give thanks to the Lord for He is good, for His mercy endures forever. Meditating on that truth, He really is good. He is our Father and He loves us. God has revealed Himself to us as a generous Father who gives Himself for us. You need to see Him as He is. Don't let the devil steal that away. Father who gave all in order that we might be saved. He's exhibited His love in giving His Son. Don't look at Him as a bigger version of an abusive father, but look at Him as the Father that He is revealed to be. Jesus can never seem to say enough good about the Father. If you knew Him as He is, you would never be able to say enough good about Him either. And now let's look at our third point, that to pray rightly, we must see God as in heaven, our Father who is in heaven. The words in heaven distinguish God from all other fathers and gods who are on earth or in some other place. Saying that He is in heaven reminds us that He is not part of the creation. He is transcendent. He's completely above and beyond us. He does not take up space. He is the one who created space. He is not dependent on us for anything, for He was before us and is wholly sufficient without us. We are His idea. We are His creation. 
His design, that which He called into existence that would not exist if He had not. The whole material world and also the non-material world of spirits and men, I mean, things that are not the creator uh, of men and angels, these are all His creation. That He is in heaven means, as Psalm 115.3 says, that He does whatever He pleases. It says, but our God is in heaven. He does whatever He pleases. He has authority in heaven and in earth. He has power to do whatever He wants with His creation. He does all for His glory, as we saw this morning. Not that He will arbitrarily do something randomly with us, for He has spoken of what He will do with us. He has spoken and made covenants with us to to tell us what He will do. But the point is that nobody can stop Him or persuade Him or to do anything but what He Himself is pleased to do. He is too high above us for that. Psalm 115, though, goes on to compare Him to the impotent gods of the nations who are not like that. They can't do what they want. They can't uh, they can't do whatever they please. In, in verses 4 through 7, it describes the gods of the Gentiles like this. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They can't even do that. Eyes they have, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. Noses they have, but they, cannot, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throat. In other words, they're presented as being, um, as they're presented by their worshipers as being able to do something. People speak about them as having power. People look to them and pray to them and trust in them as if they can do things. But in the end, they're impotent. They cannot do whatever they please. A God that you make up is unable to save you. Now, we should understand that sometimes. Uh, when people pray to idols, they do pray to demons, and demons can do something. But the point here is that they're impotent and cannot do whatever they please. They can only do what God would allow them to do. So you're praying to someone who does not have all authority in heaven, but something that is created. Verse 8 goes on to say that those who make these idols and trust in them will be like them. In other words, As a worshiper of such a God, you will become impotent the same as your God is. Do you know why? Because our strength and our life is found entirely in the true and living God who is in the heavens. And the day will come if you are not looking to Him to receive grace and strength in order that you may live and serve Him, then you will be cut off completely and unable to do anything that you want. That will be hell. If we trust in gods that cannot do anything, then we cannot do anything either. We cannot even keep ourselves from perishing. And the day will come when you do not want to perish. And you do not want to be cast into the lake of fire, but there will be absolutely nothing you can do because your gods are not able to prevent that. The things that you have been relying on and the things that you have been praying for. And so the great exhortation of Psalm 115 for us is then, to trust in the Lord. Follow along with me in Psalm 115. In verse 9 through 11, we are repeatedly called there to trust the Lord. It says, O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. 
You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. We express our our trust, of course, how? By praying to him, asking him to bless us. If you trust him, you call on his name. And then in verses 12 through 15, going on in Psalm 115, we're assured that he will bless us. He can do it because he is the one who made heaven and earth. He is our God who is in the heavens. Verse 12, the Lord has been mindful of us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and great. So see, that's an echo of what we saw in 9 through 11, what we asked for. May the Lord give you increase more and more, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. He is the creator of all. So with confidence, this, this, this gives us great confidence in our prayers. He is not like the do-nothing gods of the nations. We ask for great things. We ask for huge requests when we know that he is not just our father, but our father in heaven, because we know that nothing is impossible with God. The more we recognize his power, the larger our prayers become. If you pray small prayers, you need to recognize that your father is in heaven. Now let's look at verses 16 through 18. Verse 16 tells us that while God is in the heavens, he has given the earth to us. It says, the heavens, even the heavens are the Lord's, but the earth he has given to the children of men. Our task is to fill the earth with God's praise, to live for his glory. Isn't that what everyone is here for? Isn't that what everyone is made for, for the glory of God? We're here to fill the earth with the glory of God in the way that we live. That's why we were created. That's the reason that we were put here. The earth was given to us, and that's what we're supposed to be doing. But verse 17 tells us the great disruptor of our prayers is death, and our praise is death, our living for God. It says the dead do not praise the Lord. They don't live for his glory. They don't serve him. They don't worship him, nor any who go down into silence. So there's on the earth, when our body, when, when our body dies, when we die, then we're no longer worshipers of God here. Yet, in verse 18, we declare confidently that we will keep on praising Him. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. We will do what we were given to do on the earth forever and ever. Do you see? When you call on the Lord, when you trust in Him and call on His name, He blesses you so that you will be able to bless Him with forever and ever in all eternity. We will be raised from the dead and we will be gathered to Christ to praise the Lord forever upon the earth. A new heaven and a new earth with, without a curse. We will be freed from sin and death and we will praise Him forever. That's the largest prayer you could ever pray. That Lord, I will be able to praise You forever and ever. God will do this because he is the almighty God who made heaven and earth. He is not a do-nothing God who can't keep you from perishing like the gods of the Gentiles. He is the God who answers large prayers. Wonderfully, Psalm 116, the next psalm begins with the words, I love the Lord because he has heard the voice of my supplications. 
Our God is in the heavens, and He does whatsoever He pleases. Nothing is too hard for Him. Even making us eternal worshipers who fell into sin in Adam. What an encouragement and help this is for us in our prayers. Not only do we come to Him as a Father who is willing to help us, but the God of heaven who is able to help us. Brothers and sisters, nothing is impossible with God. He is going to take us miserable sinners who call upon Him and bring us to glory. We need this encouragement because we do not always seek the answers to our prayers immediately by design. There are many times when you pray and you go on struggling. You pray for healing when you're you're sick and you're still sick. You pray for the salvation of others and you don't see them saved. You pray for the defeat of Satan and the world, but you... It seems like they're getting stronger. You pray to overcome sin, but you find, as Paul testified, that sin is still present with you. We have the problem that is mentioned at the beginning of this psalm, that the glory of God is not seen. So that the Gentiles say, verse 2, where is their God? There's a complaint at the beginning of Psalm 115. Gentiles say, where is their God? To them... He looks just as much like a do-nothing God as any of the other gods that are in the world. We prayed for rain and there was no rain. This psalm frankly acknowledged that that is the way it is at times. We can certainly find plenty of situations where people might say this. Abraham prayed for a child. No child came. Year after year after year. He got too old to have a child. Where is God? Where is the son that he promised to Abraham that all, through whom all the nations would be blessed? God's people are in Egypt, in bondage, 400 years, one year after another, praying for deliverance. God's people are found constantly turning to idols. God sends enemies and famines and pestilence, even though we pray that God would bless his people. Why do they turn to idols? Why do they go astray? Churches are weak. Pastors fall into sin. Members become cold and dead in their faith. Some even depart from us and walk no more with God. This is the reality of the situation where we live. Lord, like the Gentiles will say, where is their God? We don't see any evidence of your God. You look the same as it is for us. This is the reality. But all the while, those who know God are praying not only for our own glory. We're not praying for our own glory but we're praying for God's glory. Not that we would look great, but that He would. And sometimes God designs things so that things don't look very good here for a long, long time, and we may be in a time like that. And then He manifests His glory. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, verse 1 says, but to Your name give glory. Because of Your mercy, Your covenant love, because of Your truth or Your faithfulness, We know that God does things that reveal our weakness so that His strength can be seen. When our prayers do not seem to be answered, it is not because God is limited and unable or because He doesn't care about what we have requested. We know, for example, that Abraham was not answered in order that God might be more glorified 
when he gave him a, a child when he was way past age. And when everyone thought it was utterly impossible in order to show that the child that God was going to bring forth, that he promised to bring forth, could only come forth by the supernatural power and hand of God. So the delay when prayer was not answered for so long was actually a very deliberate and intentional thing that the glory would go to God's name. Abraham, he must have tired of perhaps being mocked, you know, over... So, so, okay, you were called Abraham, and he changed your name to Abraham, father of a multitude, and, and you're going to have a child, and, and he's going to, all the world's going to be blessed through this child. Okay, tell us about it, Abraham. You know, you're, you're an old man. It's not happening. That must have been weary, wearisome to him. But then God was glorified when he brought forth the son of promise. We know that Israel, as I mentioned, was in Egypt for 400 years. And while they were there, as they were praying and stuff, they, they saw Pharaoh got more oppressive, the Pharaohs from generation to generation, and got stronger and stronger and stronger. We're ex- that's explained to us, isn't it? In the New Testament, and in the Old Testament too, God says to Pharaoh in the Old Testament, for, for this cause have I raised you up. I made you mighty and powerful in order that I might be glorified in bringing you down. That God might show everyone that he was Lord. That's what he said. That every, all might know that I am Lord. And so if we see wicked, evil empires that oppress us, rising up, getting stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger, our Father is in heaven. Our Father loves us. Our Father cares. And we say, Lord, not to us, but to your name, give the glory. We may die as a people that say, oh, they've got an impotent God. He doesn't do anything. Just you wait. It's part of the process of what God is doing. And not only that, but our God will be seen in sustaining us in our faith and trust. Like we saw this morning with the Lord Jesus, I will trust in you, he said. In those times like in Isaiah 8 where everything was not going well or uh, different different periods in in the history of, of God's people. We know that Israel was weak. We know that the church today is weak and fickle. It's all to show that we do not save ourselves, that we do not bless ourselves, but God is the one that does that. We trust in Him, and He blesses us through Jesus Christ. We trust in Him, and He enables us to live forever in His kingdom. When we go to live in glory in His kingdom without sin anymore, we're going to know where the power is from. We'll have no doubt because we've seen our weakness here We trust in Him and He enables us to live forever. He does not bring us to glory all at once. But at the last day, after we have felt our weakness and learned that our salvation is only in Him, then He will bring us. Knowing that unanswered prayer is not a relational problem, as if God were not really our our, our Father, nor is it a power problem, as if God is not really in heaven and able to do whatever he pleases. Knowing that enables us to keep on praying with confidence when we do not see immediate answers. He is our Father in heaven, and the preface to the Lord's Prayer tells us to pray to him as such. Indeed, Psalm 115, 12 through 13 is right. The Lord has been mindful of us. All along the way, he will bless us. 
He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and great. Dear congregation, do not come to him in any other way, but as your father in heaven. Come with confidence in both his care and concern for you, his willingness to hear you as a father, and also his power and ability to hear and answer you as the one who is in heaven. You will not be disappointed in the end if you come to your God in faith like that. Abraham was not disappointed about his child. Israel was not disappointed about their bondage in Egypt. Nor will we be disappointed wherever we are. Call upon the name of the Lord as your Father who is in heaven. Please stand. Oh Lord, how we praise you that you are in the heavens and that you do whatsoever you are pleased to do. There is nothing that is too hard for you. It's never an issue with a lack of power to be able to do what you want. It's rather what you have willed to do. And we thank you that you have revealed your will toward us, that we who have come to be reconciled through Jesus Christ, who have received the spirit not of condemnation, but of liberty, of the sons of God, that, Lord, we know that you have told us that your purpose for us is not condemnation, but glory, and that you will bring us to glory, and that you will bless us, you will do all that you have spoken, every single promise in Jesus is yea and amen to the glory of God. And we pray then, Lord, that we would, knowing that, that we would be a people who are able to pray in difficult times. And we would know, Lord, that you are faithful, even if there are generations when the church is very weak and even getting weaker, that, Lord, you are still with us and you will bless us still. Such is the circumstances that your people have found themselves in again and again and again. We certainly do see it in the Old Testament, the times of the prophets of Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah with a people that were stubborn and hardened and going from bad to worse. We see it in the New Testament with churches that had been planted by the apostles and already they were going astray into Judaism or into worldliness and carnality or into divisive schism. There problem after problem after problem. We have seen it in church history, Lord, again and again. Where are even those churches that were initially planted in different parts of the world? There's very little trace of them now except that they have gone on to other peoples and other nations now that are calling on your name. And so, Lord, we come to you with confidence that you will not desist in your work. You will continue to do your work and that you are working. And Father, may we even pray wholeheartedly with confidence and faith to you as our Father in heaven. You will do what is good concerning us you will bring glory to your name. You will bring good to your church. Oh, Lord, we thank you because you are good and your covenant love endures forever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing a song. God will always have a people on the earth to praise him. And at the last day, all of us who have trusted in him will be gathered together to praise him forever and ever our God who is in the heavens, receive his blessing.
now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever, and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.